In this podcast, we're going to discuss about the way that Asia behaved regarding the war in Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion in Ukraine, but also about the next day for Asia, how the Asian countries are doing financially, economically, geopolitically, and if they can survive and how they can survive the war in Ukraine, if it has affected them in the way that it has affected Europe, European Union, NATO, the United States. Um, I have the pleasure to have this discussion with uh, Simon Tai. He's the chairman of the Singapore Institute of International Affairs and non-resident ambassador to Greece of Singapore. Uh, ambassador Tai, thank you very much for thank having you. this discussion with me, this podcast for Eliamep. So, do you believe that Asia, Asian countries will be uh, gravely affected by the war in Ukraine? Well, thank you for having me. And I want to start by saying that uh, Asia is doing quite well economically. Um, really, after the pandemic and the hits of the last few years, the countries, except for China, were all on the uh, brink of opening up. And with that opening up, uh, most people predict a 4 to 6% growth. Now, this is pre-Ukraine. So there will be implications economically and politically from the situation uh, there. But they are not major. So they are minor signs. But compared to the upside, the, the positives, they will be, they won't wash out growth. So in ASEAN, we still predict a fairly good year ahead, depending on the pandemic policies more than the situation in Ukraine. This is partly because Russia, while uh, politically important, is not a major economic player, uh, either in trade, let alone in investment. Um, now, of course, there are specific products or sectors which will see some impact. The price of energy uh, for countries like uh, China. This is already on the rise and this further impact, it will see a spike. So some calculations are that China might shave off 1% of its growth because of energy pricing, not purely because of Ukraine, but overall hike in prices. There are, of course, knock-on effects because of the commodities and this again exacerbates the feeling of inflation, which is already there before Ukraine. So in terms of the equity issue, you know, whether the lower middle class will have enough food on the table at the right prices, this will be another danger sign. But having said that, I would say that overall, the growth and financial stability of Asia is strong enough to weather the storm in regard of Russia itself. Now, um, some Asian countries have imposed sanctions. Singapore is one of them. What kind of sanctions? And do you believe that you will keep this sanction up for uh, months, maybe for years, because we don't know how this war um, will evolve or how much time it will take to, uh, to have an end in this war? Yes. Um, Singapore, my country, has taken on sanctions. But so has Japan, Korea. So we're not the only ones in Asia. Now, the word sanctions, of course, covers a huge variety of different steps that could be made. And in the West, uh, the sanctions used against Russia uh, are really at the high end, you know, affecting SWIFT, uh, affecting almost uh, everything, including oil, to the state where it's almost the most ratcheted sanctions I've seen, except for Iran. Now, I haven't studied Japanese sanctions or Korean sanctions so much, 
But I would say Singapore's direct sanctions are quite limited against a number of banks, against specific products which have potential dual use. Uh, I think there'll be a great caution about any financial listing in Singapore regarding uh, Russian entities. But at the moment, no particular individuals, uh, people alleged to be close to Putin or otherwise, have been named. So they are quite uh, uh, moderately sized sanctions. And I think therefore they can continue. Uh, the only question is whether people think it's enough. I would say on that part, it is not usual for Singapore as a very open economy to take sanctions. And in fact, there are already some people in Singapore wonder why we should be doing this. But on the plus side, I would say that Singapore must also be very aware of the secondary impact of sanctions. For example, our Singapore Stock Exchange has already asked questions of some Singapore companies which are doing business in Russia. This is not so much directly because of our sanctions, but these are questions that will arise because uh, they may be monetary flows to the banks, which therefore affect uh, our connections to the Western world. So in this sense, these secondary effects really are a, a, a ripple uh, because Singapore is really plugged into the global and largely Western economy. You know, in that sense, uh, if the Americans weaponize the US dollar, uh, if the Europeans and, uh, and, and America really strategize around SWIFT, Singapore has no uh, uh, choice but to follow uh, the secondary impacts, no matter how narrow our primary sanctions are. So I think that uh, we are very much part of the international system and with the economics, but also the UN General Assembly vote with such a large number of countries condemning what Russia has done. This is very much in accordance with really global opinion. Well, the war in Ukraine changed us. Uh, that has begun with the pandemic, but now that's a, a whole another issue, a very difficult and very dangerous. So if I ask you, if I asked you before the war and I ask you now, for you, what is the biggest threat for Asian countries now, what would you say to me? Well, I think one of the big issues that we've been facing in Asia is the increasing contention, competition, potential conflict between America, not Russia, but China. And this really cleaves our region into harm because our economy is so centered on China as the final base production and its own market. And really we did so very much in the idea of interdependence huh? within Asia, but of course across the, the, the Pacific with America and with Europe. So I think that has been the big issue. Uh, Russia compared to that, as I said, is really a, a small player. But this idea that China will support Russia, or this idea that China might be the next invader, uh, this really signals to us that the period where we can face tensions with China, but still have it as part of our partnership economically, that could be ending and could be ended like that uh, if China was to take the wrong step. So one of the things that we're really watching in the next weeks, next months is how much the early February statement of China's friendship with Russia without limits. To what extent is that idea going to be taken 
to its so-called logical conclusion. As Russia banks face problems, as companies face problems from the West, will it turn to China? Will China welcome them? And then will China get hit by the secondary impact of sanctions? And in a sense, force the issue of separation, not just between Russia and the West, but China and the West. And then the ripple effects on the rest of the Asian production system. Well, that uh, um, two-polar system between United States, uh, West, if you want, NATO against China, um, has begun even before the war, even before the Russian mm -hmm. invasion uh, to Ukraine. And how do you think that will evolve in the future mm -hmm. if we take, for a moment, the war out of the equation? Well, on the Sino-American tensions, China really wanted it kind of both ways. It has a strong sense that the Western or American agenda is against China, and it has very few friends, except maybe Pakistan and Russia. Right? The rest, like North Korea, are very small and quite unreliable. Um, but China wanted both ways. You know, the same China that talked about anti-West wants to be the comprehensive and progressive trade partnership agreement, which includes allies of America like Japan, Mexico and, you know, Canada, you know. So it, it wants to be part of both worlds. Uh, will it, in the heat of this moment, take the idea of limitless friendship and choose one against the other? I, I hope not, not just for China's sake, but really for us, uh, which are so, as I said, used to having this interdependence. I, I would think that China must be calculating on its own national agenda. What is that? At the moment, for President Xi, he's up for this unprecedented third term as leadership. That is seen to be foremost in his mind. Uh, and so things like the growth or even the Winter Olympics, these become important, right? In both economic, cultural or sporting terms, but reflecting on his leadership. The growth in China is not strong. Uh, its situation right now with the pandemic is of alarm. I mean, many of us think it's inevitable that this great wall against the pandemic will collapse because of the Omicron variant's ability to just, you know, escape capture. It won't be lethal, but it will be necessary for China to adjust its economy, its health policies, if not immediately, then shortly after she does get his third term. Therefore, before that happens, to risk so much by partnering, being dragged into circumstances by Russia, I, I think it is unwise for China. We will have to see what happens, but that's my calculation of how China will want to keep both sides. Recently, as you noticed, China has said that it has to meet, can mediate. Uh, China has said it is abstaining in the UNGA uh, resolution and the UN Security Council it did not vote with Russia, it voted to abstain. Now, this doesn't sound like a limitless friendship. Yes, and it also, Beijing has also a very good relationship with, with Ukraine. Yes. It's one of the biggest trade partners yes. of China. Yes. And uh, also the matter of sovereignty is yes. something that for China, for I think- For Uyghurs and Taiwan. It's very important. Yeah. And it was trying to court various members of the EU in different ways. You know, remember the effort of 15 plus 1, as well as the um, 
uh, investment agreement with the EU as a whole. So that's what I mean by China really wanted uh, it both. And I'm not sure it really sacrificed everything for, for Russia on this issue. Well, um, India is also a big player in Asia, in the world. How do you think that the what the future holds for India and its relationship with the other Asian uh, countries, and also the European countries and the United mm. States? Russia, uh, India is a major player. Uh, its own uh, bulwark of an economy, its size, importance. Vis-a-vis -vis the intra-Asian production economy actually is off to one side. It's decided not to join the regional competitive partnership. China did. India negotiated all the way then, did not ratify, did not sign. More than that, uh, Chinese Indian investment, Indian trade across Asia pales in comparison to other comparable economies. So while its potential is huge in, as a part of Asia, its reality today is not of the same scale as it could be. But India, I would say, is playing several games at one time. With Russia, of course, there is a very long historical uh, uh, relationship, as well as a defense ongoing reliance. It must view uh, Russia's growing relationship with China, though with some concerns, given that for most New Delhi strategists, the chief concern today is China, uh, with various border and other pressure points in the Indian Ocean and elsewhere. India doesn't want to see itself as number two to uh, um, China. And therefore, if Russia's relationship with China does become too close, the, China, the Indians will play a third card they have, which is the Quad. Uh, while all this has been going on, the US-Indian relationship has again warmed up. And I think that uh, while it will take time, Russia, uh, Indian thinkers must be finding ways to get out of this reliance on Russian Armaments, because fundamentally, if your chief concern is China and China's clear relationship is growing with Russia, you can't be relying on Russia to supply you vis-a-vis -vis China. Well, um, we talk about um, economy, we talk about the war. I want to ask you also about liberal democracy. I want to ask you um, if you fear that uh, uh, when countries have uh, autocratic regimes or even dictatorships, uh, like like Russia, because Vladimir Putin for so long, for 20-something years, for 23 years, uh, he says that he's elected, but actually he's not, because there is no contest, he's alone in the elections, and most of his opponents are in prison or dead. Um, do you think that also plays a role in regarding the wars, regarding the way that uh, they behave and uh, um, uh, they have relationships with other countries and with, mm. with the people? Well, you know, my background, my practice still is very much international law. So um, we have, in post-World War II and the UN Charter, made this bold effort to be against the use of force completely and hold that line. Now, therefore, you have to think about the situations where countries nevertheless do cross that line act illegally. Now, while I think there is a case to be made that here, without domestic opposition that can be voiced, and his own close circle uh, of decision makers, Putin has seen the world in a different way, somehow thought he could win this and win it 
handily. But let's not forget the you know Iraq War. I mean, where America, stung by nine one one, though democratic, also saw blood red anger, and then you know consequences flow from that. The argument I think of most American Democrats I I know would be that the system rectifies itself, but it takes a long time. So I don't think either system has found a way to keep rationality when one is uh, uh, feels insecurity and risk. Um, so I, I'm not here to say that there is any good reason for acting illegally, but I think that part of it is to act preventively, to prevent that sense of threat. In 9 of course, if it never had happened, then there would not have been that push to get into Iraq and frankly, you know, all this false information about weapons of mass destruction and other things that the Bush administration did. And I think this is a regrettable chapter in America. Uh, understandable, but regrettable. Here we have not only me, but a lot of people saying that Putin was put in a corner and about NATO's expansion, the potential expansion. I, I wouldn't again like to say there's any reason to act illegally, but I think we have to learn lessons from this. When we see that there are undemocratic or otherwise leaders who will take umbrages and things, we have to be very cautious about crossing certain red lines. I think that this is an important lesson to have continued dialogue about one's sensitivities. Uh, put those guardrails in. Ambassador Tai, do you believe that the problem was NATO expansion for Vladimir Putin or having nearby in, uh, in people like Ukrainians that they are uh, like brothers with, with Russians to have a Western type democracy so near Russia? Well, again, I'm, this is what John Mersheimer, uh, well-known American strategist has written. And I know John, I respect his views. I, I do not necessarily want to associate them because I simply think that whatever the provocation was, uh, one cannot act illegally. There is no good excuse for acting this way. But I'm trying to answer your original question, which is, does a non-democratic system, auto autocratic system, uh, make it more likely or less likely? And my answer is simply, when one feels that threat, the existential threat, whether it's a democracy nearby or whether it is a terrorist attack or whether it is a, a, a NATO membership, then one puts the tiger in the corner and then there will be a reaction. And are you prepared to deal with that? Are you able to deal with that? Again, it's not to excuse the tiger, but is trying to get this idea, not so much of democracy and truly justice, but simply an older idea, one of order, you know, the how to solve problems while keeping a decent amount of stability in the global order. We really didn't need this. Um, the world was suffering from these years of pandemic. We were all trying to come out, you know, smell free air, get the economy going again. We, we don't really want to spend more money on armaments. We need to spend money to heal the divides within societies, between societies. We've got climate change to worry about. It is truly sad that these key issues facing us today 
I hope they'll still progress, but they are going to take a knock of spending and attention as we deal with this caveman-like ideas, you know, of the, the old use of force, the idea of illegality being tolerated. And I hope that we will find some way to solve this or at least put it in the corner. Now, I do not mean that we'll simply whitewash it. I, I think one of the things that we have to think about is why between 2014 and Ukraine, uh, Crimea, and today, you know, how did we just let it come up as if we didn't expect this? Uh, there will be a lot of uh, analysis needed, but it's a moving thing. In the next few days, we have to see what China will do if the reports about uh, uh, requests of assistance from Russia are real. Thank you very much, Ambassador Tai, for this discussion. Thank you. Thank you.